Our first reading this morning is from uh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Verse 1 to 18, chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram. It was caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the thousand on the sea, as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. We're going to read now from the letter to the Hebrews, starting at chapter 6, verse 13, at which point it should become quite clear why we had that very interesting and important first reading from Genesis 22. So we'll read from Hebrews 6, verse 13, down to chapter 7, verse 10. Let's hear God's word together. When God made his promise to Abraham... Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness and that also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word to his people. And certainly we'll be praying that uh, it'll be made clear to us as we consider it now. I invite you to join me in prayer before we uh, have our sermon. Our loving and heavenly Father, we thank you for the word just read. Lord, we thank you that uh, whilst there is uh, care to be taken as we seek to uh, explain it, Father, we thank you that your word is a word that is reliable, a word that speaks loud and clear to the people of all generations and ages. And we ask, Lord, that by your uh, Holy Spirit that that word will now be laid open, that our hearts would be soft, that our minds would be open, and, Lord, that you would impress upon us by your Spirit the truth of your word and what it reveals to us about our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. I understand that I'm uh, on camera. Is that right? Am I, am I being live streamed? Am I being recorded? Because I, I didn't really spend... Uh, too much time in hair and makeup this morning, so uh, <laughs> I don't think there's a lot you can do for me anyway. Um, friends, it's, it's really, the, it's, I just want to say what a wonderful uh, renovation you, and extension you've got done to your buildings here. It's absolutely fantastic. I knew it was coming. I think the last time I spoke it was at a uh, boating or rowing club or something like that, wasn't it? And that was lovely, but uh, and, and the building's really not what we're about, but isn't it a blessing to have such a beautiful facility 
which allows you to do all the things that you want to do together in this place as God's people, you know, to minister to people, to look after children and people and their various needs. So I think that's worthy of praise, and I, I, I just, I'm very heartened as I come. Our brother Chris, uh, who I think is just out the back there, uh, gave me a tour this morning, and I, I was amazed. And I said, this is like an industrial kitchen, Chris. You can, wow, yeah. But it is my job uh, this morning not to praise you for your building, but it's my job to bring out the big ideas from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, to chapter 7, verse 10. And in one sense, friends, it's not an easy task because there's so much in this passage to consider. But in another sense, it is not such a difficult job because the writer makes his points in such an abundantly clear and simple manner. We're going to consider just two main points from our passage today in Hebrews, and those points are firstly, the certainty of God's promise, all right? The certainty of God's promise to Abraham. And that's really largely what we do in the chapter six portion of the reading. And the second point is Melchizedek, just think how great he was. And that's the part that concerns the, the chapter seven verses. So let's look straight at our first idea, friends, which is the certainty of God's promise to Abraham. In the opening verses of our passage, being verses 13 to 15, we read the following, and I'm not sure if it's easy to put it on the screen there, brother, uh, or otherwise if you've got your pew Bibles, it might help a little bit. Uh, It says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. And the promise to Abraham that the writer is talking about refers, of course, to the famous incident in Genesis 22, which we read earlier, wherein Abraham was told by the Lord to do the unthinkable, to go up onto Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son Isaac. And just as he was about to go through with the dreadful act of plunging his knife into his own son's body, the angel of the Lord stopped him. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And the Lord provided a ram with its horns stuck in a thicket, and that ram was used for the sacrifice instead. And Isaac, as I'm sure we all know, went on to live to a a ripe old age. And what happened next in the story in Genesis 22 is recounted in its most important details for us in our passage in Hebrews 6, especially verses 13 and 14. God promised, swearing by himself, to bless Abraham with many descendants. And that promise came to full fruition for Abraham. As verse 15 indicates, he had waited 25 years for Isaac to be born after the initial promise. of That's quite a long time, isn't it? People in my generation can't wait more than 25 minutes for a promise to come true. And then he waited another 60 years to see grandchildren. With patience, he saw the start of the building of a nation, even though it was only to the third generation. But we should also bear in mind what Jesus said to us in John chapter 8. He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, he saw it and was glad. That is to say, the promise to Abraham was not merely fulfilled 
by him seeing his grandchildren when really he was otherwise too old to have kids of his own in the first place. It was not merely fulfilled in the, the building of a great nation with thousands upon thousands of people, which is the nation of Israel, but it means that it was fulfilled by Jesus Christ coming to complete the covenant made with Abraham and to elevate that promise in Genesis 22 to a whole new level. Verses 16 and 17 of our passage in Hebrews 6 then say this. It says, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging uh, nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Have you noticed how people in regular society, you see this on TV, don't you? They are so ready to swear by the highest power they can think of. I hear people swear by the stars. Uh, they, people swear by all the gods. I uh, gave this sermon a few months ago uh, in Launceston. And I remember the time in my former line of work when one guy swore on his mother's grave that he would give me thousands of dollars if I'll just get him out of pain that morning. I, I found out shortly after these, his mother was very much alive. So I always really felt for that lady that her son would make such a promise. But you know what I'm saying, don't you, all jokes aside. People really do swear. They, this, is, this is easy for us to con conceive, isn't it? And of course, as we only know too well, walk down the street and you'll hear people take the name of the Lord, the, our God, in vain as they swear by him, unknowingly uh, concerning the gravity of what they're saying. But we're not talking about anything as cheap as that here, are we, friends? We are talking about the Lord promising something on oath and these verses say that he did this to reinforce to the heirs of that promise the truth and the strength of the promise by swearing by the highest thing in existence and that highest thing is himself in all of his heavenly highness and his kingly splendor the author then says this in verse 18 God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged by two unchangeable things, he says. What are those two unchangeable things? Well, those two things are what the author's been talking about for several verses now. Those two things are the promise and the oath. Right? The promise and the oath. The promise of God holds true. It is impossible for him to lie. It is repugnant to his nature, to his character. He is true to his word and he has the power to follow it through with certainty. All right? I, I make all sorts of promises and I often fail to keep them. You know, you just ask my dear family over there. But it's not the case with God, is it? Okay, he's got, he's got what it takes to make it happen. And his oath is secure. He has sworn by himself. All right, this is serious. We can read this too glibly. He has sworn by himself, which means that he has put himself on the line to make sure that what he has sworn will indeed happen. And now this is not him, you know, being like I would be, full of brash and bluster and bravado, you know, promising big things. It is actually a reflection. I wish we had time to cover this. It's a reflection on the overarching covenant he made, even further back with Abram in Genesis 15, whereby he essentially declared that he would cop the blame and punishment himself if the covenant with Abram failed. But none of this is going to fail, is it? 
That is the point that the writer of this letter to the Hebrews is making, friends. But then he steers us to something very interesting. The second half of verse 18 there, take a close look at it. He says that all that promising and oath-swearing applies to us. It applies to we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us. This is for Christians. The promise to Abraham, you see, was not just a, you know, a mere quirk of history, you know, far off in you know, some obscure place in the Near East. It is not for those even so much who can trace their family history all the way back through Isaac to Abraham. It is for those who have fled to Christ. And he says there at the end of verse 18 that it is so we should be encouraged. It's not just you know a little bit encouraged. He says so we should be greatly encouraged. And just in case that is not interesting enough for you, friends, take a look with me, please, at what he writes next in verses 19 and 20 of Hebrews 6. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's spoken in verse 18 of the hope that we now take hold of. Now in verse 19 he says that his hope is an anchor for the soul. That means that it is firm and secure. And because of this hope, our souls are not going to get taken away from God's good purposes. But this, you know, this hope, you know, this word hope, it's not how we often use it in our daily conversation. We take it very lightly, don't we? So I'm going to go out to lunch after this and I'll, I hope that there'll be ice cream after lunch. That's how I say that. Or I say, I hope my children will win the competition. Now, that's the way we speak about hope. This hope here is hope that is a certainty strong enough in its nature to be an anchor for our souls. This is not a hope that says, you know, maybe if I hope hard enough. This is a hope that says, yes, the Lord has made it firm and secure. But even that, friends, is not the most interesting part. It is what makes hope so certain that we are told here. That is the part which will fascinate you. It says there that our hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. That it is our hope, friends, that enters this sanctuary. Now, the inner sanctuary, if uh, people aren't too familiar with their Old Testaments, so, uh, if you're relatively new to church, or especially for some of our younger hearers, the inner sanctuary points us back to the tent of meeting in the Old Testament. The tent of meeting is also called the tabernacle. And there was a special place. This is where God's people would come to worship. All right, There was a special place within the tabernacle called the inner sanctuary, also called the most holy place, which is where God was present in a really special way. And this inner sanctuary was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by a curtain. And even the same was the case later on when God's people built a temple, which replaced the, uh, the more portable tabernacle. There was a curtain which separated the inner sanctum. This was a place where not just any priest, but only the high priest, and even then only once per year could go in to make atonement on behalf of God's people. But even this, friends, is not the full story of the verses here in Hebrews 6, verses 19 to 20. You see, it is not the earthly tabernacle or temple or most holy place or inner sanctuary 
which our hope enters. Verse 20 makes it clear that our hope enters this sanctuary because Jesus, who has gone before us, has entered on our behalf. And it is this work of Jesus Christ as our great high priest, which is in view here. And he did not enter the earthly version of the inner sanctuary. Now, if you recall the events around the death of Jesus Christ on the cross where he died on behalf of sinners, then you may remember that something very strange happened when he died. Is that the curtain of the temple, which separated the inner sanctuary, the curtain of the temple was torn, wasn't it? From top to bottom. And that happening, Jesus has rendered obsolete forever the earthly temple, the earthly holy place. No longer could it have any bearing on the forgiveness of sins for those who would come to God. Just as it says a little bit further along in our book, and again, I I really wish we could just read a lot more. In Hebrews 9 verse 12, it says, He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered by the most holy place, oh, sorry, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Eternal redemption, friends, not temporary, not by sacrificing animals, but by sacrificing himself. And the inner sanctuary, the most holy place which he entered, was not the earthly version, wasn't the copy or the shadow version. He entered the heavenly inner sanctuary when he died on the cross. Again, just a little bit further still along in our book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 24, we read this, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. And coming back now to our focus on chapter 6, verse 20, He has become our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now we'll look at Melchizedek in detail in a minute in our second point. But for now, friends, for now what we need to see is that the hope we have which anchors our souls is based on the promise and oath of the Lord which are unchangeable and impossible to thwart and that this has been affected by the outstanding accomplishment of Jesus Christ when he as our forerunner, as our representative, as our head, entered the heavenly inner sanctuary, the most holy place in heaven, on our behalf, right? On our behalf, so that we may have eternal redemption. And so we are heirs of a promise, of a promise sealed by the oath of God the Father who cannot lie, and sealed by the work of God the Son, who has entered the inner sanctuary in heaven on our behalf, so that we may be redeemed, reconciled, and given peace with God forever. So how do we apply this? Well, there's no guesswork here, guys. No guesswork here. It says right here at the end of verse 18, so that we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Encouraged. The Lord would have us be encouraged by reading these verses. It's very simple. And this is not only for general encouragement, although it certainly is useful for, you know, it says a general uh, spiritual pick-me-up. But you see, the overall context of this part of the letter to the Hebrews is that it comes after some really stark and chilling words, where the author specifically says that those who have shared in the Holy Spirit but fall away cannot be brought back. 
but that he holds out confidence for the Hebrews' readers. And it is then that he speaks of the promise and the oath of God and the work of Jesus Christ entering the heavenly inner sanctuary on our behalf. So be greatly encouraged, French. Be greatly encouraged because you will not be one of those who fall away if you are one who has fled to take hold of the hope offered you in Jesus Christ. Be greatly encouraged, dear brother or sister, because God the Father has promised that the inheritance is yours. Be greatly encouraged, dear Christian, because the Father has sworn on oath by himself and he will keep that promise. Be greatly encouraged because Jesus Christ has entered the heavenly most holy place as your forerunner. And now your hope enters that same place because you have him as your representative before the throne of heaven. And that means that you need not fret. You need not fret about somehow losing your salvation. Yes, the warning is there from the verses before our reading. The warning is there and it is clear. Do not turn away from the faith. And each and every one of us needs to have that warning ringing in our ears and the warning is grave and it is urgent and it is terrifying. But friend, do not think for a moment, this is good news here, do not think for a moment that your security in heaven, that your eternal life and inheritance in the kingdom of God somehow depends on your faithfulness. Do not think that your eternal security somehow depends on your performance. Do not think even for a fleeting moment that your place in Christ's kingdom depends on you being you know, the world's best Christian who never sins or makes a mess of things. Do not think that way because what you have in Jesus Christ is certain. It is certain because God promised it to Abraham. And if you believe in Jesus as your Saviour and Lord, then that promise is for you. So be greatly encouraged. Do not fear about losing your salvation if you sin. Or even if you go through a period of doubt. Because God swore on oath and even swore on himself. And that oath is immutable and that oath is as good as sworn for your specific benefit if you have received the forgiveness of sins and the forgiveness of sinners as is found in Jesus Christ. Be greatly encouraged. Do not fear about being excluded from the number of the elect when we face God on his throne because Jesus Christ has entered the heavenly inner sanctuary on your behalf. And he did this, of course, when he died for his people, which includes you, if you look to him in faith as your Lord and Deliverer. And that work of his, entering the very presence of his Father in heaven to secure the forgiveness and atonement of his people is effective for you. There's no ifs, and there's no buts, and there's no maybes. It is yours, and it is yours forever. So be greatly encouraged our second point concerns Melchizedek just think how great he was we move on now to consider of course uh, the person who I think to be one of the most intriguing characters in all of the holy scriptures 
We're introduced to him in the last words, of course, of chapter 6, where the writer tells us in verse 20 that Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, that's not always the easiest name to say in the pulpit. It's a little bit easier than Mephibosheth and Onesiphorus, but not much. Melchizedek, so if I trip over my, my tongue, please excuse me. But the importance of Melchizedek as a figure in the scriptures is immense. And the author of the letter to the Hebrews stresses that importance because he simply refers to Melchizedek so many times. And so he writes this in verses 1, 2 and 3 of chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. I'm going to go over this fairly quickly. This man was a king, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And in this way, the writer is already foreshadowing for us, isn't he? Uh, Jesus Christ, excuse me, as Prince of Peace, as the Son of Righteousness, as the King of Kings. And what it says about Melchizedek there in verse 3, about having no father, mother, genealogy, beginning or end of days, it does not mean, friends, it does not mean that he was a divine being. There's nothing else in the text, nothing else in the rest of the book of Hebrews, nothing else in the Genesis account to suggest that Melchizedek was a divine being. And he's certainly not, uh, and I say this with all due respect, as some people are all too ready to claim Melchizedek was not a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. What the writer is doing by using these sorts of words is giving us a contrast between the priesthood of the Levites, where family lines mattered, where being the son of such and such a man mattered, and showing us that Melchizedek stands apart from that. That's what he's doing. And in verse 3 where it says in our translation, like the Son of God, it would perhaps be a little bit better rendered as made to resemble the Son of God. And that is significant because it confirms to us that Melchizedek was not divine but was made to be something special by the Lord. The rest of the passage starts with that, those words, just think how great he was. And there's a reason why I chose that as the title for my sermon this morning. You see, when we look at the letter to the Hebrews as a whole, we get what the author is doing in these verses. If you, again, I wish I had time to go through this in detail. But in the first part of the letter to the Hebrews, he establishes that Jesus is greater than the angels. And in the next part, he establishes that Jesus is greater than Moses. And now he's establishing that Jesus, as the great high priest, is greater than any of the priests of the old system. And it starts with proving that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And that is done by the fact that Abraham paid a tribute to him. He paid a portion of his money to him. He gave him a tenth of the plunder he had collected from defeating the wicked kings. Paying tribute like this is a sign of Melchizedek being greater than Abraham. And as verse 6 tells us, Melchizedek took this tribute from Abraham and also gave Abraham his blessing. Verse 7 goes on to explain 
that this shows that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because the lesser person is blessed by the greater. And, and we know this only too well, don't we? Old people you know, do not seek a blessing from children, do they? It's the children who will seek a blessing of whatever sort it takes from older people. It might be their grandparents. Powerful people do not seek a blessing from the weak. You know, our politicians in Canberra are not waiting around hoping that I'll somehow bless them. Okay, I'm seeking something from them, a blessing from them. So Melchizedek taking tribute from and then giving his blessing to Abraham is clearly the greater figure. And then we see the significance of that for the priesthood in verses 9 and 10. Levi, as a descendant of Abraham, can be said to be in the body, or as the, the old King James puts it, in the loins of his ancestor. The idea of, a, of an ancestor including his descendants is not really that strange to us, especially if you know your Bibles. It was said to Rebekah that two nations are in your womb. It is said that you know in Adam all die. So that idea of representativeness, of headship, it's not so hard for us, is it? So the priesthood of the Levites was inferior to that of Melchizedek because they, in a sense, paid tribute to the greater priest. And the point is that Melchizedek is, is greater, far greater than Abraham, greater than the Levites. And very conveniently for us, this ties in perfectly even with our first point. Jesus Christ is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and Jesus Christ has done what no Levite priest could do. He has entered not into the earthly inner sanctuary, but into the inner sanctuary of heaven itself on our behalf. And so our hope enters there with him as our forerunner. We have a greater priest, and we have a greater priestly work to bring his people forgiveness and atonement with God the Father. And that means greater things for us, things that accompany salvation. And the upshot for us, I say this by way of application, the upshot for us is to have Jesus Christ as the great high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, to have Jesus Christ as the one who is at the very top of our thoughts and our affections, as the highest position in our hearts. And the application for each of us is to hold to Jesus Christ as our great high priest for you, for each one of you, to hold to Jesus Christ as your great high priest as the one for you. For me to hold to Jesus Christ as my great high priest and certainly for us as a body of believers, as a church, to hold to Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And that means that any time, friends, any time, we are tempted to try to make our own atonement for sins or to seek forgiveness from God by doing some sort of penance or a trench of good works, we need to stop, leave all that behind and turn and believe in Jesus Christ, our great high priest who has entered the heavenly inner sanctuary on our behalf. It is in him, friends, in him alone, that our hope is anchored. But we tend to go wrong here, don't we? We become aware of our sins in some form, and then what we do? We, what we do? We make the big error, don't we? We, bar we bargain with God, you know, that we'll reform our ways so long as He stops our sins having unpleasant consequences for us. If Jesus Christ 
is our great high priest forever, then we must leave all of our bargaining behind and have our hope in him. And finally, I just want to say that we sometimes address or try to address our sinful tendencies by some sort of a Protestant version of a Roman Catholic confessional. So we declare that we'll make amends, don't we, by trying harder or giving to charity or serving in the church. That's laughable, isn't it? Even compared to the God-ordained sacrifices that the Levites administered on behalf of the children of Israel. And friends, it is all to be left behind. If Jesus Christ, great high priest forever, in a greater priesthood than the Levites, certainly greater than the Pope, and certainly greater than our efforts to do penance, has entered into the heavenly inner sanctuary to secure our salvation. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for the amazing things that Christ has achieved for us. Lord, that he went where no earthly priest could go, that he did so entering the heavenly inner sanctum for our sake, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that each and every one of us, man and woman, boy and girl, regardless of who we are, what our background, would know what it is to have our hope enter that same place with him as our forerunner and know the, the, the eternal security of having him as our head, as our great high priest forever. And we ask this in his name. Amen.